The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy times, seventy-seven times. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to you, to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to believe that we are tuned into this right now, gathered in this room, a few of us, because you have seen to it. You have something you want us to hear, something you want us to be challenged by, perhaps, something that you want us to trust. I pray today, Lord, that as we look at this topic that is so difficult, forgiveness, that we would do so in light of believing that we have been utterly and completely forgiven by you and that we are your beloved children. Help us to remember that as we listen to this sermon today. Give us grace to respond in ways you ask us to respond, even when we're not sure how we can do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the email showed up in my inbox about a month or so ago 
seemingly out of the blue, someone who has hurt me deeply. Someone who I had invested more than a decade of my life and then just ghosted me without an explanation. And now they want to meet. We're going to do this tomorrow. The email isn't exactly great. It said, if, if I did anything to offend or upset you, please forgive me. And it's an expression that I've heard many times, not just towards me, but towards others as well, which often means I don't want to talk about anything I've done wrong. I just want you to forgive me so we can move on. But for what? What am I supposed to forgive this person of? Specificity is necessary because forgiveness is always messy business. It's not our mother tongue, so we don't know how to talk about it. I let this sit in my inbox for about a month before responding with a simple, would you like to get coffee? That appointment happens tomorrow, so say a prayer. I may begin with saying, you will have my forgiveness, but what would you tell me what I need to forgive you for? And while the request in this email for forgiveness is timid and perhaps incomplete and maybe avoiding responsibilities, the person will have my forgiveness. Not because I want to grant it, I'll be honest. Not because I'm perfectly over it. Not because I'm going to retrust this person in any way at all, maybe for the rest of my life. Because trust is earned, it's not a gift. And anyone who treats a relationship that cavalierly will need to earn back trust over time. And that's their decision, really, not mine. So why am I doing it? Why am I having this meeting? Why not just let the email just sit there and go away? I mean, after all, the email actually said, no need to respond if you don't want to. Why am I doing it? Well, because of texts like you just heard Joshua read. And the Beatitudes, be merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. This is the part we forget about that, I think. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. And because Jesus said, Father, forgive them on the cross. And because I recite the Apostles' Creed regularly, that I believe in the Forgiveness of sins, and I can just keep on going with reason after reason. But I don't want to forgive, honestly. I do it as an act of the will, an act of obedience, and pray that at some point the feelings will follow. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, and sometimes it's a mix. I'll do this because forgiveness both receiving and granting it is at the heart of Christianity. And I am trying to be a Christ follower. So I don't think I have a choice, really. But it will be hard. Forgiveness may be the hardest thing Jesus asks us to do. And here it comes along Peter. They've had the conversation about conflicts in the church and Sins being committed against one another and, 
And so Peter's concerned about this, so he asks this question, you know, to what extent are we expected to forgive? That's really what he's asking. To what extent, how much do we have to do this? I mean, at what point do we cross the line and not have to do this any longer? What are the possibilities? And I have little doubt that Peter was feeling really good about his offer of seven times. Pretty great, right, Jesus? And if you read any things about Jesus in the Gospels, you'll know that a lot of times our, our grand ideas are not exactly appreciated. <laughs> so Jesus responds famously, um, and to the complete shock of Peter, a number. It's ambiguous in the Greek. Is it 77 or 70 times 7? The NRSV puts it 77. I think it's 70 times 7. I think that's the best choice of those two. It it doesn't matter. It's outlandish, and it represents infinity. But I think it's important because there's another place in the Bible where we have this 70 times 7 situation happening. It's because Jesus is recalling, I think, what we might say is a, a bloody limerick from the book of Genesis. When a man named Lamech boasts, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then my vengeance is 70 times sevenfold. I think Jesus is recalling that because Jesus is always flipping things on their head. For Lamech, the big thing was exponential revenge. And Jesus turns that over and says, no, exponential forgiveness. Exponential forgiveness. Here's why. The Christ-like love that absorbs the blow and responds with forgiveness is the only real hope we have in this world for real change. I think this is why Jesus renounces revenge. To respond to hate with hate, you know what it does. It just enshrines the status quo and only guarantees that hate will win. And that's what keeps the world as it is. Hatred, no matter how justifiable, simply fuels the endless cycle of revenge, and Christianity has more to offer this world than recycled revenge. There's a book by Solomon Schimmel called Wounds Not Healed by Time, and he tells this story. During the Armenian Genocide of 1950 to 1915 to 1917, One and a half million Armenians were murdered by Ottoman Turks, and millions more were assaulted and forcibly deported. From the Armenian genocide comes a famous story of a Turkish army officer who had led a raid upon the home of an Armenian family. The parents were killed, the daughters were assaulted, the girls were given to the soldiers. One officer kept the oldest daughter for himself. And eventually that oldest daughter was able to escape and later trained to become a nurse. And in an ironic twist of fate, she found herself working on a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. And one night by the dim glow of a lantern, she saw among her patients the face of the man 
who had murdered her parents and so horribly abused her sisters and herself. Without exceptional nursing, he would die. And that is what the Armenian nurse gave, exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, you would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse and asked, have we met? Yes, she replied. And after a long silence, the Turkish army officer asked, why didn't you kill me? The Armenian Christian replied, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies. For that Christian, no further explanation was necessary. For her, forgiveness was not an option. It was a requirement. It was the practice of forgiveness in her mind, and I believe needs to be in ours, is synonymous, actually, with being a Christian. And so Jesus makes it pretty clear to Peter that this forgiveness is not an option. It's a necessity. And then Jesus tells a slightly helpful parable. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're going to find in this sermon series, Tell It Slant, that these parables are kind of helpful sometimes. And this one is. But just a reminder about parables. We must be careful to distinguish between parable and allegory. As in many rabbinic parables, the figure of the king can serve allegorically as a reference to God, but this does not mean that all of the details of the king's behavior and character are a one-to-one -one correlation to the character of God. So just as we do not regard God as a despot who would sell women into sexual slavery as punishment for their husband's sin, so we need not take the concluding detail of this parable about unending physical torture as a definitive theology of God's nature. Don't let that pretty typical, honestly, of first century parables, don't let the typical hyperbolic, um, extreme, apocalyptic language, don't let it have you missing the point. But don't let yourself fully off the hook either. And I think that's part of the, what's going on here. I mean, honestly, some of the most conditional-sounding things ever said in the New Testament is around this idea of forgiveness. Want to be forgiven? You have to forgive. But let's make it clear. God is not in the business of forgiving those with a perfect record of forgiving from the heart. God is not forgiving me or you based on our performance of forgiveness. God doesn't torture people until they do forgive either. But in God's wisdom, we have Jesus' stories and Jesus' statements that underscore the absolute crucial nature of forgiveness in God's economy. It's as if God is saying, you know, those statements, they're not maybe accurately describing me, but you know what? We're going to let them stand. Because forgiveness is urgent business. Now, also in this parable, the word slaves, it's a really, I think, an unfortunate translation. 
Because the most likely setting for this parable, what Jesus is maybe having in mind and what his audience would be actually thinking is more along the lines of a Gentile court system of the day. The man, this man was more likely one of this king's tax collectors or tax farmers. The king of a region would have all sorts of clients working beneath him. And some were a higher status than others. And it was a great place to be because you were in much better shape as a person if you were part of the, the royal uh, system than 80% of the population, which wasn't, which was mostly peasants and artisans. And so people jockeyed to have position as one of the king's clients. And this particular one owes a lot of money. He collected on behalf of the king, and the collection is woefully inadequate. And Jesus, as he often does in parables, takes this kind of to the theater of the absurd. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years of wages for a laborer, one talent. So 10,000 talents would be equivalent to 2 million years of wages. I mean, tens of billions of dollars. The point is it's not actually repayable. He's not able to repay it. But as the king... The king forgives. Now, Jesus is drawing, I think, from real life here as well. Because what the commentators will tell you is they, they speculate that rulers would sometimes make grand gestures of debt forgiveness to make themselves look like some type of a Messiah figure. So there may be going, maybe more going on than this mere pity with this king's debt forgiveness. And like the first century Gentile economic system, there was a hierarchy. If you're part of it, you, know, you were much better off. You had lesser clients. And so this client of the king demands payment from a lesser client. He asked for debt forgiveness. This man, having just been forgiven, says, no, pay up or I'll have you thrown in jail. And that scandal is observed by the minions jockeying for higher position in the royal court. And so reports are made. And the king responds with punishment in scene. Okay, so what are the takeaways? Two big ones. Two big ones. And the first is obvious, and that is that forgiveness is essential. It's essential for the good of your soul. You may be familiar with the Anne Lamott quote where she says that not forgiving is like eating rat poison and expecting the rat to die. But here's the thing. How do we actually go about it? Forgiveness, that is. One of my favorite ways of thinking about this comes from Carolyn Miss and her beautiful book, Enter the Castle, An Inner Path to God and Your Soul. It's a guide to the life and times of St. Teresa of Avila, the extraordinary 16th century saint and contemplative master. And she talks about those we have not forgiven as prisoners that we lock up in cells in a dungeon. The people that we won't forget are prisoners in cells in our dungeon. Who are your prisoners? We all have them. The parents you can't forgive are in a cell. The business partner who cheated you and whom you still resent is in a cell. The ex-spouse is in a cell. The co-worker who undermines you is in a cell. The friend who ghosted you is in a cell. The church 
or organization that traumatized you or perhaps kicked you out because you were gay or because you are asking too many questions or because you're questioning authority, any number of reasons, or in a cell. And she goes on to talk about how these people that we're holding in these cells are likely holding you prisoner as well. And we keep them in there because we don't think they've paid for their wrongdoing. She says that your soul, of course, is not by nature a warden. She talks about our souls are not by nature a warden. We're not... It, she, she actually treats the soul as saying something to us. Don't imprison trauma and rage inside me. Don't lock up images of vengeance within me and believe you're being righteous. Don't try to justify yourself with self-pity and present protestations of your innocence. Events happen as they do for reasons greater than your reason can comprehend. And she says your challenge is to develop the strength to accept things as they happen, learn from them, and move on. You're not the great executioner, she says. And then she says this. She then asks us to dialogue with each of those prisoners, whatever they may be, one at a time. She says, as you look at the prisoner, review what's coming up in you. Review the energy, the emotions, and thoughts that have become prominent in your mind as a result of you holding this person in your dungeon. Journaling that out would be a really good idea as well. And then I'm going to plot this up for you, this quote. She says, There comes a point at which you have to let go and forgive. You can start your prayer with, Help me to forgive because I don't want to forgive. I feel entitled to be angry even though the anger is killing me, not them. And no one really cares that I'm angry. It's destroying my life, not theirs. I want to punish someone, so I punish my kids or I punish other innocent people who have never harmed me because it is my way of punishing them. So I really don't want to forgive because then I think all my hurt will be forgotten and that feels so unfair. But what is fair? No one's hurt is fair. I just think that justice should revolve around me. So help me to forgive. One person at a time, beginning with fill-in-the-blank. That's your beginning. You take it from there until you've emptied your dungeon. Whenever you add new prisoners, you'll have to revisit your dungeon. You know, that part, if you remember, notice this in that quote, that part about punishing others, when you haven't forgiven the persons who have actually wronged you, you know, there's a very good chance that anyone who is really, seems like almost ridiculously angry and resentful towards you and they just can't let it go, are really angry and resentful toward their parents or some other authority figure in their life. And they are displacing that anger onto you, especially if you are their boss or any kind of authority figure in their life, this is how humans operate. 
And Jesus is calling us out of that cycle. So when you empty the dungeons, it doesn't mean everything will be fine. Forgiveness is not synonymous with healing or reconciliation. Healing has its own timetable. Reconciliation isn't possible sometimes. Sometimes our lives depend on us severing ties with our offenders, even after we've forgiven them. In this sense, forgiveness is not an end. It's just the beginning of a journey. This is why Debbie Thomas says, For this reason, I worry that romanticizing forgiveness obscures its communal, multi-layered power. This is always true, but it's especially true when we're talking about marginalized communities. In white Christian America, it's too easy to think of forgiveness as a culminating act, as a redemptive happily ever after ending to the story of race-based violence, for instance. But when, for example, victims of racial hatred forgive their racist oppressors, they're not ending anything. They're preparing their hearts to begin, to resist, to approach the battlefield one more wearisome time. Forgiveness enables the oppressed not only to survive, but to lay down the cumbersome weight of hatred and bitterness and gear up for the fight. Forgiveness is the beginning of the hard work of building God's kingdom, not the end. And then the last and second big takeaway here is that forgiveness needs fuel. When you say, I can't do this, you're right. You can't, and nor can I. We need fuel. We need something extra. The commands to forgive others in Scripture usually are immediately connected to do so as we have been forgiven ourselves. In other words, Jesus and the apostles seem to believe that being a recipient of the infinite love of God should create a wellspring of an infinite capacity to forgive. In other words, we forgive out of our experience of being forgiven. We love infinitely out of the reality of being infinitely loved. We love with the love of God and forgive with the forgiveness we have received. That's the idea. Jesus only calls us to give what we have received, unbounded forgiveness. That's the fuel. It's why Richard Rohr, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and blessed are the merciful for they will become merciful, they will extend mercy. A lifetime of received forgiveness, he says, allows you to become mercy. You become forgiveness because that's the only thing that makes sense to you. The only thing that's alive within you. Mercy becomes your energy, your meaning. This is why, friends, the most unforgiving and judgmental people are to be pitied. Because if they are this hard on others, they are almost assuredly even more ruthless with themselves. Understanding yourself to begin to be the forgiven, beloved child of God is the gateway and the fuel to the radical forgiveness that God calls us to embody in this life. And so what do you think that God thinks about you? As you stand in the presence of God, what do you imagine God is thinking about you?
when I think of what it would be like to be fully in the presence of God, I believe I would see myself as fully and candidly and as compassionately as God sees me. Rowan Williams actually said that, and I agree. Have you traced your struggle to forgive others to how you may not actually have forgiven yourself or believed that God actually forgives you? That might be the place to start. Somebody says, this is it practical. The Sermon on the Mount and all of these things that Jesus said, they're always, they're always not practical. The problem is, he not only said it, he lived it out. When Jesus prayed for his enemies to be forgiven as they drove nails into his hands, he was living his own sermon and he was validating his right to preach it. And after that, no one would dare claim that Jesus' teaching was not practical. Jesus had lived it, died for it, and been vindicated by God in resurrection. That's why we forgive. So friends, what about you? How is this landing for you right now? I tried to give you a warning that this is going to be difficult. <laughs> but let me be clear. Forgiveness is not retrusting someone who has hurt you. Forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness is not pretending that an offense doesn't matter or that a wound doesn't hurt. Forgiveness is not a detour or a shortcut. The same Bible that talks about forgiveness and calls us to forgive also calls us to mourn and to lament, to speak truth to power, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Forgiveness is not quick or easy. But what would it look like for you to start to unlock those cells and clear your dungeon of the prisoners? You know, we are a congregation on a mission, a mission of justice, a mission of transformation that is trying to take the words of Jesus seriously. Not just to worship Jesus, but to listen to Jesus' ideas and try to embody them as a community and individually. So that everyone can flourish. So that everyone can have enough. So that everyone can thrive. We can't be that community. We cannot be that community if we are individually and collectively nursing even cherishing our resentments. We cannot be what God is calling us to be when we stay in that cycle. And so, friends, let us take up the work of forgiveness for the sake of a broken and desperate world to end the cycles of vengeance, to point to a more transformative way of being in the world, to be liberated from our resentments that make us so small. Forgiveness is liberation. Let us pray. This is a hard word for us. 
very complex and nuanced. Give us grace, Lord, to follow you in this perhaps hardest command. Help us to begin to take steps in whatever ways we need today to unlock cells, to liberate prisoners as we are being liberated ourselves through the power of forgiveness. And help us to know that in the work and in the person of your son, Jesus, you call us to recognize and to know your love and your forgiveness in a profound and transformative way. Bring that to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.